Faya, I encourage you to come and take your seats. Now, I want to I start this morning by asking you all a question, okay? So I want you to think about this question. What does it mean for you to be chosen, okay? What does it mean for you to be chosen? Now, I know that this will come as a huge shock to many of you, but at school, I was not chosen for the football team. <laughs> wasn't chosen for the A team, wasn't chosen for the B team. Actually, even in PE lessons, when you had to choose somebody, I was often the last one picked, okay? Now, I, and I, I'm as shocked as you are, so thank you. But sadly, this is with really good reason. I am absolutely terrible at football. I have never understood the whole kick it with the side of the foot thing. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. I don't really know the rules. I think I might have scored one goal in my time at school that I can vaguely remember, and I think even that was a, probably an own goal. Um, so if you were having a football team today, you probably would not choose me because I am terrible. Why would you, why would you want me on your team? But the, but the point I'm trying to make is that actually that being chosen is important, isn't it? You know, we want to be chosen. You know, even though I was absolutely terrible at football, absolutely useless, I wanted to be picked for the team. I wanted them to say, yes, Matt, come on up. We need you. You know, we want to be chosen for the university that we've applied for. We want to, we want to be chosen for the job that we've applied for. We want to be chosen by the person that we love, don't we? And the reason is, is that being chosen assigns value to something. You know, if somebody chooses you, they're assigning and giving you value. And today, we're going to look at um, John the Baptist, who was chosen by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. We're going to look at Jesus, who is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we need to look to today. And we're going to look at how the Messiah, how Jesus chooses us. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to read today from John chapter 1. We're going to read, um, in total, we're going to read 19 to verses 51, but we're going to break it up into three sections. So we're going to start from 19 to 28. So it says this, now John, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then are you, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And see, what we, what we see here is a delegation from the Pharisees sent to find out who is John the Baptist. And they start by asking him three questions. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? 
Or are you the prophet? Now, God's people knew that they were waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And this would have been overly prevalent in their minds because they were occupied by the Romans at this time. You know, they were, they were a captive people waiting for rescue, weren't they? And so ultimately, that, that, that's going to lead them to the question of, well, when is the Messiah going to come? When are we going to be rescued? People were seeking and people were asking these questions at this time. And so it wasn't an illogical question to ask John if he is the Messiah. After all, he'd been preaching a message of repentance. He had also been baptizing many people. His ministry and following had grown considerably. And let's be clear here, John was incredibly bold. He, um, he was unafraid to call people to repent of their sin so that they might be forgiven. He was unafraid to um, publicly call out key figures. You know, he publicly rebukes people like King Herod. He spoke with real authority. But, John, but when, answered, when asked the question, John says, no, I am not the Messiah. Now, the, the next question is, are you Elijah? Now, for those of you that don't know, Elijah was a prominent prophet in the Old Testament. And we read about his ministry and life in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Elijah performed many miracles. He called down fire from heaven in front of the prophets of Baal. He, um, he raised a boy from the dead. And finally, he was taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. But Elijah was alive roughly 900 years before the time of Jesus. And so you might be thinking, well, how could it, how could, why would they ask him if he's Elijah? And the reason for this is that in Malachi 4, it is foretold that God will send the prophet Elijah again to the people before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So again, before the Messiah comes, it is expected that Elijah will come first. Now John, when asked, are you Elijah, answers no. Now this is a particularly interesting point because... If you read on, in, in Matthew 11, Jesus later declares that John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come. And so this is a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? John says he's not Elijah, but Jesus says that he is. And um, I found a particular quote by C.F.D. Mule, um, a theologian, really helpful. I'm not going to read it word for word, but if you want to, it will come up on the screen behind us. But essentially, what he is saying here is that the Gospels clearly identify John the Baptist with Elijah. John the Baptist, when asked by the Pharisees, humbly rejects the exalted title of Elijah, but Jesus bestows the title upon him. Jesus is the title giver. He is the one with the authority to do this. And I think in, you know, I think in terms of like my job and my office, you know, where I work, um, if you want to get promoted, there's an expectation that you are already doing the role. So if you want to go up to that next grade, you want that next title, you need to manage so many people, oversee so much stuff. And it's only when you're already doing that that you're then given the title. And I think of it a little bit like this. Actually, Jesus has given John the title because he is fulfilling what it means to be the, the Elijah that was to come. The third question is, are you the prophet? Now, the prophet is referring back to Deuteronomy 18, where God says that he will send a prophet like Moses to his people. And again, John answers no. And so this leaves the obvious question then, doesn't it? Well, who are you? Who are you, they say? Come on, give us an answer so that we can take it back to our masters. And John says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, 
Make straight the way for the Lord. And John here quotes Isaiah 40, which is referring to God's people coming out of exile. This is symbolic of God's people being far away, being distant from him, and then ultimately making their way back to be reunited into relationship with God again. You see, John's mission is to prepare the path for the Messiah to come to his people. So how is it that John is making straight the way for the Lord? He is doing so by preaching a message of repentance. And by repentance, I mean he is calling people to acknowledge their sin before God and to turn from their wicked ways and to recognize that they need forgiveness, that they need to be right with God. He is preparing them for the Messiah that is to come. And what he's doing in response to this is that he is baptizing people. Okay? He is baptizing people. But he is not just baptizing anybody. He is baptizing Jewish people. Now, ritual washing was expected in the Old Testament. For example, if you came into contact with someone that had leprosy, there was a, a washing ceremony that you would go through in order to be made clean. So this wasn't something that was unfamiliar to God's people. But this, what, what we see here is slightly different. Bible commentator Leon Morris states that baptism was not a new practice in Judaism. It was a regular rite in the admission of converts from other religions. When such a conversion took place, the males of a family were circumcised, but all of both sexes were baptized. In this way, they removed ceremonially the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. The novelty in John's case and the sting behind his practice was that he applied to Jews the ceremony which was held to be appropriate in the case of Gentiles newly coming into the faith. All Jews were prepared to accept the view that Gentiles were defiled and needed cleansing, but to put Jews in the same class was horrifying. The Jews were God's people already. Now, you see, at the present time, Jews reserve baptism for for Gentiles or anyone that was a non-Jewish person. And this was because they were considered lesser. They They were considered to be unclean, whereas God's people considered themselves clean. And they made the mistake of putting too much emphasis on their lineage. And they didn't, they didn't, what, what they failed to see here was their own need for salvation. And we too must be careful here that we don't think too highly of ourselves. As Christians, we must not become the new Pharisees of the, of the day. We mustn't rest on our family, our upbringing, our achievements, as though these somehow justify us. You know, take John the Baptist as an example. He was a devoted follower to God. He was an incredible guy. He was an impressive guy. Even Jesus later on goes as far as to say that no one who had currently been born was greater than John the Baptist. And yet, what does John say of himself when he's compared to the Messiah? He says, among you stands one of whom the sandals I am not even worthy to untie. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, in the society of the day, taking off somebody else's sandals was one of the most degrading tasks that you could do. Um, It was a hot, dusty culture. The the roads would have had animal feces on them, and people's feet would have been nasty. Their sandals would have been nasty. Their feet would have been nasty. It wouldn't have been a nice thing. I mean, even if you had to, even if if I said, hey, Nathaniel, would you like to come and take my shoes off and my socks off? You probably wouldn't want to do it now, would you? Because feet are nasty. They're, uh, they're not good. And, and so much so that if you had an, a Jewish employee, you could not ask a Jewish employee to do this task for you. 
it was considered too degrading to ask a fellow countryman to take off your sandals for you. You could, however, ask a Gentile. But notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am only worthy to untie his sandals, as if the Messiah was similar to the rabbis and the religious authorities to the day. You know, maybe he was a few uh, rungs up this kind of social pecking order. John is saying, isn't saying that the Messiah is just above the rabbis and the influential people of the day. He is saying that he is in a completely different class altogether. You know, where, where I work, we have, a, we have an organizational structure chart. So you can go and you can see your name, and you can see all the various people that come above you until you eventually get to the CEO himself. And John isn't comparing, like, the CFO to the CEO. He's not even comparing the most junior apprentice to the CEO. He's saying that there is no comparison. There is no comparison between the Messiah and us. He is saying that there is no comparison. That he is saying the Messiah who is standing amongst you is so holy, so worthy of all glory and honor, that we are not even worthy to perform the most degrading of tasks. Okay, let's read on. We're going to read from verse 29 to 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And this is God's testimony, that this is God's chosen one. This is the Messiah. This is the person that we have all been waiting for, and it is Jesus. John starts by saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this one sentence alone, you can grasp the Christian gospel. This is the Christian gospel. You know, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about lambs. You know, maybe you think of uh, a lovely Sunday roast dinner with crunchy roast potatoes, a leg of lamb, a little bit of mint sauce. I like to think of um, Kaylee, our middle daughter. Um, if, you, if you go to Farmer Palmer's, you can feed the lambs. And uh, very excited, little, little, this was a few years ago, little Kaylee at feeding the lambs. And we get the bottle of milk, and then these crazed lambs come bolting out of this door. And she, like, throws the bottle and ru runs into me in fear as this, it appears that this lamb is going to attack her. And eventually she gets over it, and she has a great time. Um, I also think maybe some of you will remember a few years ago, we did a Gateway Church uh, men's weekend away, and we, we, like, roasted an entire lamb over an open coal fire. There was no cutlery, there was no knives and forks, we just kind of grabbed a bit of meat and bread, and we had, a, we had a great time. But, you see, for John's audience, the image of a lamb is far more significant. You know, they would have likely remembered the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was told to go and make and offer his one and only son as a burnt offering to the Lord. Abraham and Isaac make their way to the place where they will build the altar with the wood, the kindling, and the fire. 
And Isaac asks, asks his dad, but where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the, the burnt offering, my son. And in the last moment, the angel appears and a lamb is provided. Isaac goes free. Or perhaps their minds would have jumped to one of the most prominent stories in the people of God's history. And this is the story of the Passover. This is when God's people were slaves and servants in Egypt. And they were severely mistreated by their Egyptian masters. God sends Moses, his prophet, to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God sends plagues upon the Egyptians. He turns the river Nile into blood. He sends plagues of frogs and gnats and flies. He brings sickness and death to their livestock. He inflicts the people of Egypt with boils. He sends huge hail and thunder and lightning. But none of this work. Still, Pharaoh says no. He then sends locusts and plagues, plunges the city into darkness, but again, Pharaoh refuses. And for the final warning, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, if you do not let my people go, God will kill the firstborn son of all of the families of the Egyptians. Pharaoh still says no. And so God instructs, instructs the people of Israel to take a lamb um, a year old and without defect and blemish, and to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorposts and door frames of their houses. And as the angel of death comes and it goes through the city, it sees the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the people of God and it passes over their house and they are saved. And so God's people were spared death because of the blood of the lamb. Or perhaps, they would, perhaps John's audience would consider the words of Isaiah the prophet when he is talking about the Messiah to come. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the Lord will, pro will prosper in his hand. You know, and this is the message of Christianity, that Jesus is God's chosen one. He is the one who will save his people, and he does so by being the Lamb of God. He is the sacrificial Lamb who dies in our place for our sin. You know, God's people in Egypt didn't die, but the Lamb did. And so is it with us and Jesus. And this is Jesus. This is the saviour that we all need. And he might not be what people wanted or people expected, but he is what we need. What we need is to be right with God, is to have our sins forgiven. In, and in order for that to happen, we need a lamb to be slain. We need someone to die in our place and to bear the wrath of God so that we can go free. And Jesus is the chosen one. And what's even more amazing is that Jesus, this chosen one, chooses you. And we're going we're to carry on reading from verse 35 to 51. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him saying this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and follow, following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying and spent, and spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now it was, I'm trying to think now, it must have been 14 years ago, because um, it was just before me and Hannah got married, that I learned to drive. I don't know about the rest of you. Might have been a few years longer, maybe a few years less. But when I learned to drive, sat-navs were the, the popular thing of the day, and you could get a TomTom or a Garmin, and they were the thing that you used. Mobile phones weren't really where they were today. It was, I think the iPhone 3 had just come out. It was the first Samsung Galaxy phone. Um, they weren't really what you used to get around. It was a sat-nav. But sat-navs weren't always that great. Now, some of you will remember probably similar experiences. I remember taking a sat-nav, and you end up driving halfway through some farmer's field, and you think, this is definitely not the right way. Or, you know, you hear stories of people that it, it told you to go left onto a road that didn't exist. And these were some of the, some of the old problems that used to happen with sat-navs. But, but nowadays, I, I don't know about you, I use Google Maps all the time. I never have any problems with it. I find it always gets me where I need to go. So much so that a few years ago, um, my auntie was getting married uh, up in, I think it was Chester, and, um, no, it wasn't, sorry. My cousin got married in the Lake District, and my parents didn't use a sat-nav because they knew the way. They knew the way. And so we, both, we set off at slightly different times, but we got there in six hours, pretty clear traffic. We had a slightly weird detour through some residential areas. My parents did not have the same weird uh, cut through this residential area, and it took them nine hours to do the same journey that took me six. And in all honesty, I really trust Google Maps. I, I believe that it works. I have tested it, I have tried it, and I've seen that it does what it is supposed to do. And trust comes from learning and experiencing something again and again. And to see that, it lives up to its promise. Now, we see an interesting interaction between two of John's disciples and Jesus. They are with John the Baptist. They then see Jesus. John the Baptist, who they trust, testifies, he is the Lamb of God. And so they obediently start to follow him. But at this point, it's clear that they don't really fully know Jesus. 
They trust John, and based on his testimony, they go and follow Jesus. They haven't yet experienced Jesus for themselves. And so Jesus asks them the question, what do you want? What do you want? And I think that for some of us here today, Jesus would ask you the same question. What do you want? Do you really want Jesus? Do you want the salvation that he has to offer? Or do you want something else? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, talks about a mature demon named Screwtape who is coaching a junior demon named Wormwood on how to deceive a Christian and stop them ultimately from following and worshipping God. And one of the, one of the stories that I, I really enjoyed, I don't know if that's the right words, but one of the stories I found really helpful in that book was Screwtape says to Wormwood, if you can't stop the Christian from following Jesus, what you need to do is to get them distracted on something else. So get them to follow Jesus and their political ideology. And we've all seen how dangerous that is, haven't we, in the church? Or get them to follow Jesus and their, uh, their um, desire for wealth. Or get them to follow Jesus and their academic achievements. Or get them to follow Jesus and worship their family. And ultimately, these things are, uh, this is there to distract us from Jesus himself. But the question for both the believer and for those of you that aren't believers today is what do you want from Jesus? Do you want him or do you want him and something else? Or do you not want him at all? We see Andrew and the other disciple ask Jesus where he lives. They clearly want to spend time with him and ask him questions and get to know him. Jesus says, come and you will see. And Jesus invites you today, come and you will see. Finally, we see Philip. Now, John, John the disciple, this is John who's writing the Gospel of John, doesn't give us much in terms of his interaction with Jesus, only that Jesus says, follow him, and he does. Philip then goes and tells Nathanael about what he has found, saying, we have found him, the one of whom the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is the guy. And Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Clearly, he has doubts on the validity of Jesus. But one thing that I would encourage you to take from Nathaniel is that whilst he has questions, whilst he is skeptical, he is still open to the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to go and find this out for himself. And like the others, he is invited to come and see. Now, the interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel is an interesting one. Jesus says to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, this can also be translated to here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And this word guile means cunning or crafty, clever deceitfulness. And it's often associated in the Bible with Jacob. Now, Jacob had used his guile. He'd used his crafty deceitfulness to cheat his brother Esau out of his birthright. And after he cheated him out of his birthright, he was so afraid that his brother would come and kill him that he runs away. And uh, Jacob, that night, is left alone with nothing but a stone for his pillow. But in that moment, he has a vision from God. In Genesis 28, it says, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. God gave Jacob a promise of prosperity and blessing. And it goes on to say, When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. 
He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. God kept working on Jacob's life until finally Jacob submits to God. And he is renamed. He is called Israel. He is no longer a man of guile or deceitfulness. Clearly, Jesus is calling Nathanael an ideal Israelite. He is saying um, that he isn't a Jacob, that he's an Israel. Now, at this point, Nathanael seems intrigued. His skeptical walls are starting to come down. He says, well, how how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And what we see here is that Jesus is breaking into Nathanael's life with his supernatural power. He meets Nathanael where he is at. Despite his skepticism, despite his beliefs, he's breaking into Nathanael's life. But that's not all. He then goes on to say, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this amazing promise takes Nathaniel back almost 2,000 years to the story of Jacob's ladder. But what's different here is that there's no ladder In this story, the angels are ascending and descending on Jesus himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. And what this is telling us is that Jesus is the way. He is the way to heaven. He is the way to a full and fulfilling life. He is the way to salvation. So in summary, when we see John, we like John the Baptist are not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. We shouldn't rest on our lineage, our achievements to save us. We shouldn't rest on our good deeds like the Pharisees. What we need is a lamb who will die in our place for our sin. And we need to repent and believe for the forgiveness of our sin. Does God leave us in this terrible state of desperation for salvation with no hope? No. No, he does not. Not only does he provide a way through Jesus, he calls us. He calls you to come and see. Come and see the truth of Jesus for yourself. Come and see his power displayed and at work in your life. And after all that, he commands you, follow him. And following him, similar to repentance, means to change direction. It doesn't mean to go your own way. It means to follow Jesus' way. You know, Jesus is not an optional extra. He's not an add-on to life. He is life itself. And knowing him is to know life. Jesus is who we look to. He is the pathway to heaven, to God the Father. And it's through his blood, the blood of the Lamb, that we are made right with God. Now, how is it that, how is it that Jesus responds to you? Well, I told you that John the Baptist said that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And later, and we'll come on to this story in the coming weeks, but in John 13, Jesus does more than just untie the sandals of his followers. It says that he washes their feet. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one all worthy of praise and adoration, the one who is worthy of our entire lives, came to serve and not be served. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you enough to not only wait for you to come to him, but he pursues you. And not only that, he gets into the muck and mess of your life. All the mistakes, all the disappointments, all the regrets, and he makes you clean. He washes your feet. He wipes the slate clean. And not only that, the slate can never be dirtied again. It is washed clean. 
You are saved, you are forgiven, and he calls you into his family as an adopted child of God. I told you that Jesus bestowed this ti- the title of Elijah on John the Baptist, but he gives us a far greater title, and that is children of God. That is who we are. We are God's children because Jesus has bestowed that upon us. And he's not going to take that title away from you. Jesus chooses you. You are not the last pick for the team. You are not left on the bench. Jesus chooses you. And I feel for some of you, you need to hear that today. You need to know that Jesus has chosen you because he loves you. He loves you. So if you're a believer here today... I want to encourage you to come to Jesus afresh, and bring, your, bring your mess, bring your disappointments, bring, bring the things that you've been distracted by when you should have been looking at Jesus, come to him afresh, allow him to wash those things away and worship him because he is worthy, he is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, he is the lamb who was slain and he is worthy of our praise and adoration. For those of you that are here today and you aren't believers, maybe you're here like... Um, I think it was Simon who um, is, was, was, had the first interaction with Jesus. And you're kind, of, you're kind of looking in from the sidelines thinking, well, I can kind of see Jesus over there. And I'm intrigued. I'm interested. Well, actually, Jesus invites you to come to him, spend time with him, understand who he is. Jesus invites you into a relationship with him today. And come and see that he is what you've been looking for. He is what's missing in your life. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes us into the world. Lord, I thank you that, um, Lord, with all of, my, all of my disappointments, all of my shame, all of the ways in which I have gotten life wrong, that I have messed it up, Lord, you come and you wash my feet. Lord, I thank you for all of us here that you, that you wash our feet, Lord Jesus, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I thank you that you pursue us, Lord Jesus, that you are a loving Father who chases down your children. Father, I pray, I pray for every person here today, I pray that, um, that they would experience your love afresh. Whether it's as a child already known by you, they would experience the, the fresh love of the Father. Or whether it's someone here who doesn't know you, maybe they're looking in from the sidelines. Lord, I pray that they would experience you coming and saying, follow me today, and that they would know your great love. Amen.